with yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the writers, directors, producers, composers, VFX artists, sound mixers, sound editors, video and film editors, uh, cinematographers, costumers, production designers, uh, and creators of poofs. Uh, you're going to hear more about poofs momentarily. Uh, welcome. It's it's already October. We might make it through 2020 yet, folks. But just in case we don't, uh, we may have a solution on the show for you today. Uh, very excited. We've got some exclusive pre-recorded interviews that I'm very, very happy uh, to be able to bring you today. First up today, you're going to hear from Alex Houston Fisher and Eleanor Wilson, the co-writers, co-directors of Save Yourselves, um, a throwback, a retro throwback to sci-fi of days gone by, a lot of practical effects. Uh, our two lovely protagonists, Sue and Jack, decide to unplug and head out into the beautiful wilderness of upstate New York uh, for a week or a weekend um, and no phones, no computers, no anything. Well, they get up, they get out to the wilderness and it seems like the earth has been attacked by aliens. Aliens known as poofs. Poofs are adorable. They also live on alcohol. Just saying. Uh, I know a lot of my friends out there listening to that, and they're, they're probably busting a gut laughing at that. Um, but it is the film is hilarious. I absolutely love it. The haplessness of our two heroes, Sue and Jack, uh, that they, they have no clue how to survive. Um, no clue. Um, so, I mean, let's take a tennis racket to save ourselves. Um, it just, it, it just, you have to see it to believe it. And you can see it because it's in limited in theaters right now, in theaters that are open. Tomorrow, October 6th, it's available digitally everywhere. If you're watching the show right now on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream, you will see on our tablescape, a poof has invaded the behind the lens set today. And the poof is attacking Tiny Chef. Ah, ah, Pam, if you could see her face, just imagine scream. That is, she's just apoplectic because poof is attacking, attacking Tiny Chef. And also as an aside, if you are looking at the face at the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream page, um, you'll also see, in addition to Tiny Chef, Tiny, the Tiny Chef book, cookbook, and poof, you're also going to see a beautiful, beautiful book, um, Cosmic, 3D Cosmic Clouds. And it is the creative director and one of the collaborators on the book is none other than Brian May of Queen, Dr. Brian May. Uh, and it's a beautiful book. And Brian, many of you may know uh, that he is very involved with the London Stereophonic um, Photography. And this, these are stereophonic pictures of our galaxy. And you get this lovely 
pair of little stereophonic glasses and you can look at all these photos so they appear to be in 3D as you look at them. Uh, the images are spectacular. The book is, is terrific. I can't recommend it highly enough. And I figured it's brand new. It just came out. And since we do have an alien poof here, let's celebrate the stars and Brian May at the same time. And right in addition to Alex and Eleanor, hopefully we'll have enough time that you will also hear at least part of our interview with writer-director Bria Grant talking about her hilarious dark comedy, 12-Hour Shift. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit. But joining us at the midpoint of the show is writer-director, editor Peter Joseph with his film, Interreflections. Wow. Wow. Um, it, it, this is, it is a spectacular film. Uh, it has almost an existential nature to it at, at times. It experimental is very avant-garde reminds me a lot of Terrence Malick. Um, it is a visual stunner. It is a visual beauty and it talks about, uh, the, our society but it does so in a reflective nature, a what-if nature, and it's set in the future looking back on today, and it poses some really interesting uh, philosophies and thoughts for us as to which side of the fence you're on, uh, as to how we proceed as a world in this universe. But we will talk to Peter about his film, uh, which is also based on his book, The New Human Rights Movement, uh, shortly but right now let's take a listen to alex houston fisher and eleanor wilson talk about save yourselves hi guys how are you good how are you well i'm very excited to be talking to the creators of poofs <laughs> thank you I, I am in i am in love with poofs i even went and ordered my own poofs online I fell in love with poofs the minute I saw the very first trailer and then when I saw the film and I saw exactly what they were my first thought was they're just overgrown Star Trek tribbles yeah yeah it's like they ate a bunch of tribbles yeah I it just <laughs> so ingenious and the fact that you have an alien being that you can execute with old school yes. sci-fi technology is, I think, one of the best things in the world because it ties in with the whole idea of the film that you've got Sue and Jack who are just so out of touch with practicality, common sense, hands-on <laughs> ability to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, that they're haplessly running around like chickens with their heads cut off. But mm -hmm. then your technical aspect of the film and creating the sci-fi element is old-school hands-on. I just love yeah, that yeah. that twist you've got going on. That was our whole plan. <laughs> you know, big question for you guys. Um, do you have earthquake kits now that you're in California? <laughs> We do. Well, yes, we do. We have, okay. one, we have one beside the bed and one in the car. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that was something that we definitely felt more about after making this movie. 
which is like, yeah, there's been, maybe it's not going to be an alien apocalypse, but there's many disasters that could actually happen, and maybe we should be a little more prepared. The writing process is all about coming up with, like, what, what uh, people, uh, like, friends of ours, or, like, what we would do uh, in an emergency, like, and then it got us thinking about what we, what we should do. actually start preparing for. Yeah. <laughs> This is just such a refreshing, fun film. It truly is. What was the impetus to make this film and to have this be your first feature um, narrative and, and directorial? Uh, I mean, in terms of it being the first, Thing, it's just sort of luck, you know. Like you, yeah. we've both been working on like a lot of different things for a while, and um, you know, occasionally something just gets in the mention that it needs to get made. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happens with Save Yourself. Um, what was the first part of the question? Was how, well, how did we um, come to this idea? I think it started with Eleanor in a, in a cabin upstate. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing a writing retreat, trying to write something else, and I had bad cell reception and just got me thinking about, you know, like when you're disconnected, like what if something really bad did happen? Um, so that was kind of the, the first idea for the film. And then we thought, okay, it would be funny if like, like a couple went upstate deliberately to disconnect themselves and, yes. and put themselves in this situation. Um, so I told the idea to Alex and he thought it was funny. I thought it really, it really resonated with me. I thought it was hilarious. I was like, oh, we get to do some fun sci-fi stuff. We get to make up an alien. And it's about this like, you know, couple in Brooklyn like in their own little bubble and then they're totally unaware that the, the world is ending and it felt very relevant how we could make a funny movie about it. <laughs> what made this the right one for the two of you to direct as your first feature? Yeah. Um, it just sort of snowballed really. We, um, once we started talking about it, the ideas started falling and it was the first time I'd ever written something with an, another writing partner so um, it, it, it's a lot easier <laughs> I think when you have another person who's as excited about the thing as you are and um, the ideas kind of like flow a bit better and, and Eleanor comes she had previously made like sort of these beautiful dramatic character driven short films mm-hmm. but this was a little different and that's why I think it was fun for us to do it together because I kind of like these like big crazy Silly movie. Right, I was talking for more like um, comedy videos and, and music videos and things like, like that. Yeah. Like, you know, have, I guess, like bigger visuals and more weird. Yeah, more weird. Yeah. So it was a really good crossover for us of um, the things that we like and I think about. Yeah, like, and it's about a couple, so we could draw. <laughs> we could draw on like the things that, you know, that happen between us. Like when I accidentally closed Eleanor's laptop tab. Yeah, that really happened. And, and um, I mean, many things in this film are from our real life. We obviously changed it as, yeah. the, as the, the script draft went along. But this might be the most close to our real lives of anything we ever well, made. We ever <laughs> well, is this a case where as you start writing all of these adventures that Jack and Sue are having, all of these mishaps, all of these, you know, the big concern is the starter for the sourdough bread. Nobody, you know, where's the toilet paper, folks, okay? Uh, that you forgot. Good thing there are leaves in the forest. 
But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. We didn't even have them talk about toilet paper at all. That was a mistake, I think. Yeah. But now that we, now that we've been through the pandemic, you know, we got the sourdough starter. We actually um, got right, but the toilet paper we did not foresee. Right. Yeah, the toilet paper shortage. The great toilet. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. That's it. The great toilet paper shortage. But <laughs> what is there a point where you have? Because the mind reels with possibilities for foibles and and yeah. comedy routines. Is was there a point where you're like, oh my god, we got too much, we got to start cutting back, yeah. or your mind just kept going with, oh my god, and we can have Jack and Sue do this, and we can have Jack and Sue do that, and we can do <laughs> blah blah blah, and on and on. We did overwrite the script a lot because there were a ton of things that we could make jokes about, about, you know, people being bad at, at, like, being terrible survivalists. Like, the list went on and on and on and on, and then we we had to cut down because it was just so, it was so Long thick and with dialogue. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God. So we, we got it down, so we, we thought we're, like, we picked our, like, favorite parts and the parts that worked best for the, for the movie, and... But it was. It was hard, and we could probably make a whole, like, you know, animated series of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was even, I mean, we shot other stuff that, that obviously, you know, there's deleted scenes as well. Yeah. Now, a lot, did it come down to, with the picking and choosing what's in the film, had you narrowed it down before you shot, or did you sit down with your editor, with Sophie Marshall, and then start trimming and letting Sophie be that third eye to make the hard decision as to what was funny and what wasn't? Uh, yeah, I mean, a bit of both. I, we did try to cut it down as much as possible before you shoot because obviously everything that you shoot costs money. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but there were some things that we ended up cutting and yeah, Sophie was really integral to that process, obviously. And um, yeah, she, especially with, it was, it was a lot to do with the things that we cut were a lot to do with the pace of the piece overall and, and just sort of finding that balance between, you know, like we obviously want it to remain funny and light, but just make sure that you're kind of getting the point across um, and, and the, the train keeps moving, I guess. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Sophie has this, like, really um, sharp taste and, like, a really good sense of story. So we actually, when we, we, we edited um, on, over Zoom, she was in New York and we were in L.A., and like obviously pre-pandemic but uh it was great and we all sort of took um we all sort of took stabs at scenes and then she was like she it was funny she became the boss and she was like ah that's gotta go and that's gotta say it was like a very like the the collaboration was like it wasn't just like editor director it was just like three people trying to make the best thing yeah sure now talk to me about working with matt clegg um your cinematographer because like yourself matt has a lot of shorts under his belt. Typically, for most first-time directors, you want perhaps a DP who's a little more seasoned. But talk to me about this collaboration of the three of you uh, in, de yeah. in developing get enough images for the feature-length film, but also developing that visual tonal bandwidth, that consistency of the visual tone that uh, that serves the comedic notes of and of the story. Yeah, um, we, we chose to work with Matt um, pretty very, very early on. Um, we had a meeting with him about um, the movie, and we've seen some other work that he's done. He's done a feature called um, uh, Are We Not Cats? That's yeah. really beautifully shot. So we, kind of, we liked his work, and um, 
we met with him and he just, um, you know, was a, was a very, like, calm and kind person and um, and brought to the table some really good ideas and references. And I think we just sort of all realised that we were very much on the same page from early on, so it made sense. Um, and, yeah, in terms of, like, sort of figuring out the, the visual language, the, um, we really just, you know, we shared references for a while back and forth of different things that we liked and we talked a lot about, um, you know, always sort of like sticking with this classic look, whether it's in the first half of the movie that's more of a rom-com or the second half of the movie that becomes a creature in sci-fi movie. Um, in both scenarios, we, we wanted it always to feel like a little bit nostalgic. So, um, you know, it was, it was a very, like, out shot list, yeah. I would say, and very, like, deliberate framing. Um, and and Matt has just—he's got a really great sense of humor. And when we there are some scenes where we uh, where we started shooting handhelds and things start getting crazy, and his instincts are just so perfect, like so pitch perfect. And he and he just knows exactly like when to when to whip over to you know, for example, like John Reynolds when he's like yelling for the poop on the roof like mm -hmm. in the trailer. Like he just has these incredible instincts, and his um his like uh, just his work ethic is incredible, and his like. Uh, his uh, um, uh, attitude and, and uh, like the first, we got the first shot up for the movie 15 minutes before 6 a.m. which is yeah. all time <laughs> just because he and his team were so, so on it and like, excited. The light is great. Let's get it. Yeah, yeah it's like they just he cares so much. Like there's not not a, like an ounce of um, cynicism. It's just like mm -hmm. he cares so much about the movie and getting it right and making it look great and, and making the story work. So it was a real pleasure. And so much of, of this is your location. That location is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, we, we found our, our um, location. Jesse found, Jesse found it um, for us. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was actually the first one that we saw. And it was really lucky just that it, it kind of checked all the boxes that we needed in terms of there's a pond and there's the barn and uh, obviously the cabin itself was very beautiful but it was also very production friendly too that yeah. you can't see it um, from the movie but behind the cabin there's like you know a big catering tent and a couple mm -hmm. of trucks and yeah. stuff that just the, the way the house was sort of on a hill um, they were all hidden from all the shops which is perfect and um, we actually flipped the cabin it's what you're seeing in the movie is actually the back of the cabin and that road that they come down is not a real road it just goes to nowhere yeah. um, oh wow but it was it was just such a beautiful be like a beautifully cinematic structure and it was exactly what we had in our like when we worked with Katie our production designer when she put her her image boards together with the ours it was like we wanted kind of an A-frame with a wall of windows uh, uh, and that's exactly what we got. Yeah, the windows are really important to us because we wanted uh, it to feel like a beautiful cabin at the start that's very inviting and lovely light, but then as the movie kind of flips and becomes a little scary, all of this wall of windows makes it look very vulnerable. Um, you know, especially when you look at it at night, you know, as you can see really into the entirety of the cabin. Um, yeah, you got this, yeah, yeah, this picturesque, uh, like, you know, interior that and then you start moving the camera in different angles and everything becomes a little scary and angular like the, the beams on the ceiling and stuff so we, there was a lot of stuff, there was a lot to play with in there so one more question i've got to ask the two of you what was this learning curve like for the two of you 
especially for you, Ellen, or jumping from the world of shorts into feature filmmaking. And for you too, Alex, this is a whole feature filmmaking. Woo! This is scarier than poofs. Poofs are not this scary. And, and they drink lots of alcohol. So, you know, they got a, they got a, a one-up on everybody. Uh, right. Yeah. Figure it out. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, we, we really just took everything one day at a time. And I think that's sort of the, the bend device. We, we um, you know, we were reasonably nervous going into it. And so I think we over-prepared. You know, we, we yeah. didn't prepare a lot going into the shoot, which um, sure. certainly, you know, very helpful until it's the first Eleanor had made the first like schedule of the entire movie and she did like different iterations of it and even did different budgets so this, like before we had an idea before anybody board. came on so like we Eleanor is just like her preparation is like was hugely important and then we had um our producers uh um uh Kara and Mandy and Adi and and they and Mandy and Adi were just like um they were just like became our mentors and they told us when to worry, when not to worry, mostly it was not to worry. Yeah. And and like uh just guided us through the whole thing and made us feel at ease. And uh and then our crew was incredible and they've all shot a bunch of features mm-hmm. and they all like were just like uh it was just like a you know, it's like a well oiled machine. Yeah, everybody was so great that like we didn't really have some of the obstacles that you read about or hear about, mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, aside from the rain, right. <laughs> occasionally, like, we just had such a great team, and, like, we didn't have, it wasn't it wasn't as crazy as you might think. Right, that's definitely the trick, is surround yourself with good people who know what they're doing, Yeah, everything will be easier. And usually, the, as a director, you've shot a lot a lot less, you've, you've made a lot, you've worked on less films than everybody else, so you kind of, you kind of need to lead the way, and be led as well yeah and very quickly your for each of you your f- most favorite thing about a poof <laughs> about the poof my favorite thing about the poof uh, my favorite was uh our uh, just the the sounds that they make the um <laughs> when we decided uh that they would be cute when we there, it was very exciting and we thought like oh man if they sound cute and then they do what they do I it's think, very fun. I think I just love the name Poof. Yeah. I love saying Poof and rhyming Poof with other things. It really lends itself to a lot of humor. Just, just that alone. And that was Alex Houston Fisher and Eleanor Wilson talking about Save Yourselves and Poofs. Uh, the film, it stars... Where did my notes go now? Who knows where my notes disappear to? Sunita Mani, John Reynolds are in it, and of course, Fluffy Little Poofs, and it is, I can envision so many people in the same circumstances what we see here, but the film does have a twist, and it morphs into some really nice, beautiful sweetness, uh, so check it out, save yourselves, and if you're looking to get your own poofs, Legion M, they've got them. Now, let's see if we can, can you know, jump a shark here maybe. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and try and get in some 12-hour shift. Uh, Bria Grant, writer-director, longtime actress, uh, and her place definitely. One look at 12-hour shift. Her place really is behind the camera. And the movie is, it's hilarious. It is a dark comedy. Angela Bettis, uh 
Nikki Gamby Turner, David Arquette, Kit Williamson, Brooke Sagan. Uh, and it it's premised around, it starts with a missing kidney, a kidney that has been taken to black market dealers. But the little ice cooler is empty. Not only is there no ice, there is no kidney. And there is a there are these ner- a group of nurses and a few of them, and they're trying to make a few extra dollars. So, you know, they will get hold of some organs and pass them off to the black market and make a few dollars. But what happens when you have the intermediary who loses the kidney, then decides she's going to get a kidney because nobody's moving fast enough to get her another one, and the black market mobsters are going to kill her. And David Arquette pops up as a murderer who is taken to the hospital by the police in handcuffs and chains and somehow gets free. Uh, It's hilarious from beginning to end. But take a listen to at least part of my conversation because I don't know if we'll get to the whole thing because of, of Peter calling in. But take a listen. As we start talking about 12-hour shift, you had me in stitches with 12-hour shift. I am so excited to see you behind the camera, Brea. Oh, thank you. So excited. The minute we I heard, we have the musical montage of Lost in the Blood of Jesus. Okay, 43-minute mark. I'm gone. I am, <laughs> I'm, that's it. Um, that, that was, (laughs) so beautifully done. The editing was perfection, but the whole idea of this film, you have a very fertile and creative mind. The first thing I thought of was the big thing back in the, in the seventies and eighties when it first started taking off at frat parties and it was rumored to be down in the South. They would get people drunk, and people would then wake up in bathtubs at college parties, and they'd be missing a kidney. Yeah, yeah. And that's the story that's that's the story that I took, and uh, I kind of just ran with it. And I, <laughs> this, is, this is my explanation for what happened to that kidney. That's exactly what this is. That's it. So immediately you start with with that, and the whole idea of putting the kidney in the cooler with a cold soft drink out of the vending machine to help keep it cooler. <laughs> it was just, I'm like, oh, where's the ice? Where's the ice? <laughs> but no, let's use a can of soda. You, you get that spark for this idea. How? Where do you then go with that? Where do you start coming up with this idea of, okay, selling organs on the black market makes sense. Then you bring in characters like Mandy and Karen who are in cahoots on this. And then you get a lame brain like Regina. <laughs> and, but then you bring in just buffoons at every level. And I have to say, one of the one of the strongest characters besides the women in the film is David Arquette as, okay. the, as the prisoner. Good. He's the one who, he's got the smarts. Mm-hmm. He, he's the one with the smarts here. Yeah, and you don't think that he's going to, you think he's going to end up doing, causing a lot of harm when instead he's more or less just uh, creating chaos. Yeah. Instead of hurting people, yeah. And he actually more or less is helping 
Regina. But you start with this idea. How do you then expand it? Because these are not peripheral characters either, Brea. You give each one of them essentially their own chapter. Oh, good. Within the film. That was the goal. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted people to walk away asking themselves, like, where are these other characters throughout the night? And what are their backstories? I wanted it to be like we could follow any one of these people and they would all have an interesting story to tell over the course of these 12 hours. You have it interwoven so beautifully. And you tie everything together. You've got Mandy. She's silent. You see this uh, patient come in who's comatose from an an overdose. I love your casting uh, for Karen. She is... um, Nikaya Gamby-Turner is superbly cast. She is. She she is a real breakout, and um, I only... Uh, I met her from her audition. She just made a great audition tape, and um, both her and Chloe were cast via tape, and um, they just blew me away, and uh, they both turned out to just be amazing actors to have on set. So um, I will definitely be working with them again in the future. <laughs> you know, how because of the defining nature of each of these characters and the amount of physical comedy... This film is very much, it's got Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd-esque, Keystone Cops antics happening here. So you've got a lot of physicality, physical comedy that's happening. You've got rapier wit in not only in your dialogue, but in the, the cadence and delivery that each of these actors brings to their respective roles. So I'm curious about that whole dynamic and you wrangling that into <laughs> something that is cohesive, synergistic, and funny. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah, some days it is like hurting cats, um, but <laughs> um, no, it was really fun. I mean, I mean, all the intricacies and the jokes and stuff just came from writing and rewriting and rewriting. I, I worked on the script for a few years before we actually made it, so that helps a lot because all of everything is built in right um and then i just got really lucky i hired an amazing cast some of them i knew some of them i didn't know and they've all brought their own thing to the characters and i mean i I have to hand it to them i would always let them improvise Mm -hmm. as well so some of it is written some of it um was just that uh folks like brooke sagan tara perry tom detrenis they're all really brilliant improvisers. And so um, they would come in with just really funny takes on the lines and want to do their own thing. And of course, I'm going to allow time for that because they're just, they add so much and make me look like a genius. Okay, and that's just part of the first part of our interview with Bria Grant. We're going to come back to that. Uh, at the end of the show today, so that you can hear all of Brea's interview, hopefully. But we are interrupting it because right now we have the very talented and intriguing Peter Joseph is joining us to talk about his new film that you can all see tomorrow, Interreflections. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Debbie. I appreciate you having me on. How's it going? It's going. Uh, what can I say about this film? Other than wow, wow. 
I hope that's a good wow. It it is a very good wow. You hooked oh, you hooked me with the visual beauty that jumps right yeah. at you at the beginning. It flows like a music video. It sets a tone, mm. and then you get into your story. The visuals, the animation, the graphics through this entire film are stunning. And I love this nonlinear structure that you have for approaching a more pragmatic look at the universe and this world um, from a future perspective. Um, right. In many respects, this is a wonderful cautionary tale for us today. A fair weather warning, so to speak. So tell me, tell me where the idea and the basic premise of, in your words, uh, what inner reflections is. Well, it's many things at once. Ultimately, since it's based upon my book, The New Human Rights Movement, which is a very academic treatment, very different from the film itself, which is, of course, highly stylized challenging and avant-garde in nature. My book is all about society, what it's going to be, excuse me, what's required to get us on track to be sustainable as a species, to preserve our public health, to keep social stability. I don't think I have to remind everyone right now uh, with everything that's happening in the world, it's a lot of destabilization on multiple levels. So with that academic treatment, I wanted to do something that was very much aesthetic that got behind people's egos, as they like to say, which is, I think, what the role of art is. Mm-hmm. I think art serves a very special intuitive function. So instead of making a traditional documentary or a narrative that sort of implies something socially conscious, which we see, I wanted to try something new. And Inner Reflections is three narratives at once, it's three stories that interweave in three different timelines <clears throat> and in three different genres. So you mm-hmm. have a silent film horror movie genre, which follows my young woman character named 23, and then you have this science fiction satire timeline that takes place in the more immediate future, and that deals ultimately with a debate between two characters that that represent two different worldviews, which I think are pretty much the dominant two worldviews we see today. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have this third academic of the future timeline, which is 120 years or so in the future, and they're talking about the way things used to be and I think the power of that is it's hindsight. You're, you're able to put people in a position to look at the world today from an outside position. And I think there's some power to that as well. And in the end, uh, it's an experimental film. I kind of produced this without really thinking about how it was going to end up. I'd say one of the drawbacks of the film is it is a little longer than I intended. And I tried my best to make it a little more palatable for people. A two-hour and 45-minute film is a commitment. And it's a challenge. It's not designed as a film that someone just sits back and watches and they can escape and, and enjoy a story. It, it's a challenging project. So that's uh, those are the components of it. Well, and you bring them all together. I love the nonlinear aspect of the film. But as you mm-hmm. said, you wanted to make it palatable. You do that through the, through the very nature of the nonlinear aspect, but also through these beautiful visuals a lot of they a lot have music video sensibility to them. Um, mm-hmm. Some are extremely powerful. When we see a, a little Asian girl painting on the side of a hydrogen bomb, 
Um, you have quite what? quite a few visual sets of visual imagery like that that just they will hit you between right between the eyes and make you pay attention you. and make you pay attention. And then you bring in a wonder a, a wonderful score. I love the score oh. of this film and the eclectic nature oh. of the of the music and the your use of classical within this right. score. Um Jared Meeker's and you have multiple composers here as well as right. Tears for Fears music um I think it's sonically, it is truly an experience that matches the visuals and the power of the philosophies you're setting forth and discussing. Thank you very much. I really appreciated the people that helped with that. A lot of people went out of their way to participate with the score. And it, and it's very, um, the aesthetic of it being musically driven is, is very personal to me because my background actually is as a classical musician. And mm -hmm. I was never trained as a filmmaker. I, I learned my sense of phrasing from music and in my studies. And that's kind of why not only the music is so important to me in the film, but also the, the eclectic nature of it, because the film sort of represents an abstraction that I came to learn from my musical practice, which is why it's so unorthodox. You know, it's, it's an mm -hmm. odyssey of sorts. I mean, I, the only other film I could think of, and I'm certainly not comparing myself, is a kind of 2001 space odyssey, except for activism and the sort of way to get people into different comfort zones and out of them. And as I said before, uh, the film kind of made itself. It took five, six years. You bring up the visuals. I, I'd like to point out that this is a very low-budget film, and I pretty much had to do all of that, and that's why it took so long to develop this green screen uh, recipe and workflow because typically an average independent filmmaker like myself with very low budget would never even approach a film that's oh. you know, 75% shot on green screen. So that was a huge challenge. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, you making those comments. Uh, that means a lot. Your production values are insane. They are <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, thanks. This totally belies being an, a low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget independent film total just one look it, it it looks spectacular you have a polish Good. to everything and the detail and the layering of the different media disciplines that you have that you're executing within the animation and the graphics and film footage especially in your your black and white your sepia era um it's just, right. it's all stunning. But I'm really curious how you actually take a book, an academic book like New Human Rights Movement, and start breaking that down into a workable script for a film. Well, the, if you, um, I would say that the approach is relatively straightforward when you look at the academics of the future, the four female academics of the future. It wasn't too much of a challenge to organize the content into this kind of narrative discussion. The more, more difficult was the debate scenes in space with the two gentlemen that can represent this sort of satirical protagonist antagonistic mm -hmm. uh, reality. And that, that's ultimately the core timeline of the film. And if I do end up making a sequel to it, which I do hope to do, believe it or not, uh, that's what carries forward the science fiction timeline. Um, so the debate stuff was difficult because you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of the average person. For example, the Simon character, he represents the social Darwinistic worldview that's been with us 
ever since, you know, the dawn of the Enlightenment, where it was sort of like, well, we must just be beasts. You know, humans just must be these brute, competitive beasts, just like all the other animals, and there's no hope. So you have this socially Darwinistic or Thomas Malthusian. I use that, mm-hmm. uh, his word at the very beginning, Thomas Malthus, he sort of sets the stage for the film because his worldview is that we shouldn't even take care of the poor. The poor are excess. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of way it's seen. And I'm sorry to say, unfortunately, contemporary society is still organized in this way, which is why, you know, here in Los Angeles, you have 70,000 homeless people. It's pretty unbelievable. But anyway, I won't go on that tangent. That was a difficult debate. I think the most challenging, though, is the imagery of the of the young woman, uh, 23. She represents the horror of society as she walks through it. Right. And in this very specific avant-garde style, I was very influenced by the works of David Lynch and Aronofsky. And I was trying to find a way to make this fantasy work. Um, and to make that symbolism was a huge challenge. I can't begin to describe how much time went into those scenes, even though they kind of move very quickly. If someone sits and watches those scenes really in detail, they find many, many levels of symbolism that I don't think would be readily apparent if you only saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. So in summary, it was a very, very complicated uh, uh, creative process. And as I said earlier, it was experimental in the sense that I just kind of went with what I felt was going to work rather than having a completely uniform approach. And oddly enough, as this activity comes from a kind of chaos, I think if you know what you're going to do, you're going to end up with something you already know. So I wanted to do something where I didn't know what I was going to do exactly, if this makes any sense. So a lot of this process was very much um, intuitive, I guess is the best word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I was enthralled watching the great debate sequencing, mm. uh, watching Simon and John go back and forth. Yeah. That really sets out very clearly for people they aren't quite sure what the what really the two basic positions are um Mm. but i was and but watching them go toe to toe at opposite ends of the table one would have thought we were in COVID and they were being socially distant um (laughs) but just fascinating and the way that you act that you use the camera and you do give us close-ups you bring in some standard cinematic technique um, that people will will recognize immediately in terms of coming in on close-ups, close-ups, especially Simon, because he drinks through the whole thing. And very very entertaining, very funny. You've got a lot of humor peppered in here. Um, Yeah. It's laugh out. It's it's laugh out loud funny in parts and uh, the one particular one during the, the great debate where Simon he, he keeps refilling his glass refilling his glass and it looks like scotch and finally John just can't understand he's like you had eleven drinks how are you standing and he goes it's apple juice and it, I just cracked up I thought that was and the way of the delivery and this is very key. You're casting. Number one, you have experts from the future. They're all women. Uh, various shapes, colors, sizes, demographic, all women. Um, mm-hmm. Which, yay on that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, all of your, of your actors are so in tune with their specific character, with the angle of the vignette or segments that the period that they are in 
and it, it just melds really beautifully. Your movie theater sequence uh, is a really good one. I really, I, I like that. Great. Thank you very much. Great uh, comments about the excellent cast. They all worked really, really hard, especially um, uh, Gregory Nebel and Michael Marinaccio that played the two characters, John and Simon. Uh, we It was a grueling process to, to get that locked in. One thing you mentioned about the, the satire within it, such as the drink, the thing about that is they are self-aware that they are actors. They mm-hmm. Remember the stage at the very beginning? Oh, yes. And it, <laughs> so this is about a stage performance, and it creates a dual reality. So when science, because obviously when someone shoots a, a film, they don't use real scotch, they use apple juice or tea. So I wanted to really bring that they know they're actors, that we are an audience watching this. In the same way that you suspend disbelief when you watch a theatrical performance. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of, of those kind of broken elements that, that carry it, um, which I can't wait to see the different interpretations. Um, it's going to be very fascinating, a public response to those kinds of scenes. Well, and for those that hadn't figured it out, haven't, you know, haven't figured it out as the film is going along, you even, we see a green screen, we see, you know, X marks the spot markers, and then off camera, right. we've got Simon who's saying, no one will understand this. This guy needs to take a screenwriting course. Well, it was... <laughs> I love yeah, how correct. you're poking fun yeah. at yourself, even, in the construct yep. of this film. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to, because it, because it has that basis of satire, I felt it was very important to keep a meta, a meta level. I break reality many times just to remind the audience that this, is about the idea of this. So it's not just the scene where you feel entrenched in a traditional movie. It's also a sub-layer where you are witnessing the movie as the movie process, because to me, it's all a vehicle. It makes any sense. It's, it's, uh, it's a unique meta-level kind of attempt. Uh, so it's a fun experimentation. I thought it turned out pretty well. appreciate yeah. you catching that. Oh, I, th- I think things like that in, throughout are just so much fun. But how yeah. how long was your casting process? How difficult was it to get oh, these individuals? Very, very. Yeah, I well, for one, the film I couldn't do a union thing with this because it was it's way way more expensive and the so much more uh, red tape. I just had such a low budget, so I was I had a very small pool that I could draw from with casting over the course of maybe three years. And I actually had a different John character early on, but the management on that side wanted all this extra money and percentages. I was like, no, I can't do any of that. I'm not a professional. I have no organization. I'm just one person. This isn't a company. So um, I ended up very lucky with Michael Pernaccio. Gregory Nebel, who who is Simon, who really did a fantastic job, was with me for a solid uh, three years. Um, We didn't obviously work that long, but... He, he supported the film from when I originally cast him and stayed with me, and that was really appreciated. And then the academics of the future, they did a tremendously good job because their work didn't, we didn't have as much time for them, so they were able to execute and learn this, and I really was able to talk to them. They got it. That's the big thing about people that speak. You can't just have an actor that's just, you have to have someone that understands the content. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that back and forth went on as well. So it was a very, it was a very, uh, uh, I don't know, very raw process. There was no, you know, I did all the casting myself with my good friend Charlene Bezeghi, who's also the production manager. And I think ultimately we just got pretty lucky. 
Well, talk to me about the editing process here. Um, (laughs) This had to be Herculean. Were you editing as, as you went? Did you shoot everything first? Did you have extraneous material? What was this editing process like, especially because this is nonlinear? Right. Uh, I guess the word difficult in mind. Um, the problem with composite work on green screen is you have very little leeway, so you have to know exactly what you're doing. And in many cases, when you're renting studios, you know, Los Angeles, you have a very limited amount of time, it's very expensive, and you have improvisatory moments, and that's sort of the danger. And so there's the editing, and then there's the CGI creation. So when you make backgrounds through computer-generated graphics, an enormous amount of technical requirements go into that in terms of tracking. And I had a a small range of compositors that helped me. I did a lot of it myself. As far as the editing itself, I will say, and to my credit, because of my musical background, and I have been an editor, believe it or not, for the past 15, 20 years professionally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I started in New York City in an advertising agency college trying to make you know basically moonlighting as i was trying to be a professional classical musician and i just happened to feel a natural knack for it but i will say the process comes from pre-visualization as much as possible so you you know as most films make today you do all of it in advance you work your best to to edit with excuse me you make computer generated uh, imagery and start to animate in advance before shooting now that worked really well for say the fantasy layer with the silent film, 23, The Young Woman. Mm-hmm. But when it came to the stage performance with John and Simon, I had to set up five cameras and just figure out how I'm going to make wow. this work. Because first of all, you don't see that in movies. You don't see a, a four-minute section of just two people talking. Very rare. Right. Um, and to pull to pull that off is quite dangerous. I mean, if you isolated that section, you'd have about 45 minutes of just sitting in one place talking. So, you know, that's the stage performance. How do you make that work? That's what... so. That's why the editing is so incredibly active. I had to, you know, give energy to something that I think people would start to feel in our, you know, in our attention span culture, short attention span culture. Mm-hmm. You have to keep them engaged, and that's the editing of those forward. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I was probably most worried, in fact, about how I was going to edit the John and Simon characters because of the minimalism. But I actually think it turned out really well, especially with the music. The music carries it very well. Jared Meeker did a great job. Yeah, I, I, and of course, with the editing, you, we also have to bear in mind that you're also utilizing all the tools in the toolbox here. Uh, you're saturating color. You're using slow motion. You've got time lapse popping in here. Uh, you're stripping away color. You're, you're pop saturating. You're, you are using every tool to keep us engaged and stay within the structure of of this story for lack of a better word this and i just think it works so well and i don't know why you were worried about the john and simon sequence because that i think you just knock it out of the park there as i said thanks debbie you know i've i've considered breaking that section out and producing it as just a short for just the great debate. Yes. It is its own, you know, individual narrative. Um, I'm considering doing that as a, maybe an extra to put on a CD or something. That, yeah. w- that would be incredible. Absolutely incredible. Because you might not get people to watch two hours and 45 minutes, but they're going to watch that debate sequence. And 
after yeah. after seeing a real debate that was nothing but a free for all, I think people would welcome to see a debate <laughs> like this that sets sets out positions clearly and the bases for them. Um, I I just found that so as I said so enthralling. I and I definitely I want to watch that segment again just because. Oh, thank you. It's that good. You know, when it comes to the music, because it is very eclectic, how did you work with Jared in, determin- uh, in determining what you wanted for composition uh, in terms of that eclectic and diverse nature of the musicality, of the instrumentality even? Um, because you have a little bit of everything here. It's almost like a trip through the, uh, you know, through the timeline of history musically as well. So I'm, I'm very curious that, as to what your thoughts were. Well, so the, again, there's a range of, uh, Jim Baker did the, all the John, John and Simon. Stuff. So he is the, he is the dramatic composer for this. Mm-hmm. The other songs and tracks are a combination of different talents. Uh, some of them are custom made even by myself. I mean, I wrote um, two of the songs and performed in, in part those songs. And then the arrangements for like the Shostakovich and, and those classical stuff and the Beethoven, that was also collaborative with other people that are listed in the credits. Mm-hmm. First of all, I wanted a, a worldly view. That's why you have pretty much all ranges of music styles, just right. like the film is multiple genres. I wanted to really incorporate multiple styles. As far as the dramatic composition, Jared had great intuition with it. The best thing about working with the composer that, you know, that's in tune, that's attuned, excuse me, is they kind of pick up on it automatically. Like, all right, Jared, I want you to just take this scene, see what you come up with. And I believe he referenced some prior music that I had had in my other films. And he just, he just, he just got it. And he was able to capture the linear element in terms of my own composition, which I also suggested to him, as you phrase it based on the phrasing of the dialogue, especially for this, with, John and Simon, instead of just a sound bed, you very intricately phrase it based on what they're speaking of and the breaks in their conversations, which of course is typical of composition mm-hmm. film, but far more intense than this, because as we, as I mentioned, I was a little fearful that this would bore people because it's not, you know, jumping to scene to scene. It, it breaks the rules of formula film. Um, so that's, that's broad strokes of it. But I think the inclusion of the different genres challenges people in the same way the film does. There's, some people are not going to like some of the music. There's really heavy stuff like the bar scene where the guy it's called The Spectacle of Society this old book that was written and I bring it to life in a scene where this guy is looking at a television with a smiley face mm-hmm. and he continues to go into a deeper and deeper depression and addiction to eventually killing himself and there's numerous levels of commentary in the scene. I think that's probably the hardest <laughs> scene for probably people to tolerate uh, that aren't familiar with that style of music or the coarseness of the expression. But it's just for that reason that I put it in to strain the viewer a little bit. So to summarize my point, the aesthetic with the music, just like with the visual, is a kind of uh, push-pull. I to see how far I can stretch the viewer, uh, and also intellectually, by the way, because mm-hmm. there are things that are stated intellectually that no one's going to be familiar with. Why do I put that in there? Because I want people to go out and look into it. I want people to read the book or think about it, research some of these ideas. I kind of envision this piece as one where people might stop and start it 
and then take some time to understand better the content and hopefully find an education within it, as opposed to a one-off experience, you know, where someone watches it front to end and then they move on. I hope it has a deeper impact. And the music was designed with that same kind of in mind. Well, if it pleases you, you'll be happy to know that I made so many notes watching this film with questions that I had that I want to go back and look at again or dig into myself. Uh, be- <laughs> because there is so much that you present here. Uh, but And everything, it's important. It's important. Um, and I'm not going to give anything away here, but just when we think that the film has ended, you take us to a year later. And right. it, it might be a what if or an oh no. But <laughs> I, I think the way that you have structured that is incredible. And I th- the final words of the film, um, the quote that you have, you are all one. And if, right. you, and if you don't know now, you'll find out the hard way. Uh, and that's, yeah, that was a great quote by Bayard, Bayard Rustin in the 1960s, an amazing activist. I mean, you have quite a few really, really good good quotes, good lines in here. Um Magic unites what custom strictly divided. Uh, really, pearls of wisdom. That if, if people pick yeah, up, that was a, if people pick up nothing else, right. I hope that they pick those up. So yes, yeah. I got Alan Walsh, Marshall McLuhan quotes, and there's a lot of quotes buried within the dialogue as well mm-hmm. that reference other people that people have to you know kind of figure out the symbolism and and um, the illusions, I guess you would call them. Yeah, so, the literary. Thought was effective too. It's kind of chapter broken, but very crudely with these quotes, as you as you remember. Um, even George Carlin, I've got a nice quote during the during the musical number, which I thought was a lot of fun. Well, how can you not have you're you're looking back on the world? How can you not have something from George Carlin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so now at the end of the day, with the film coming out tomorrow, what did you? Learn about yourself as a filmmaker and storyteller in the making of Interreflections. Hmm. Well, the first thing I learned is I think to be very careful with my ambition because when even though I had experience with green screen and of course editing and so on, I took on a project that was so technically complicated, something that I literally had said was a production. Uh, around 2013, excuse me, uh, yeah, around 2013, yeah. 2012, 2013 was my first announcement of this film, believe it or not. So here we are eight, seven years later. I never intended to work film for so long. I mean, it was just so grueling. So I learned a very good technical discipline there to be far more aware of the complications of this kind of production. And as far as the growth as an artist, I, I got to do something that I think a lot of artists are unable to do for many reasons, financial or top reasons, I wanted to make a film that was so aesthetically driven, that challenged formula, and I learned that I think it's possible. Now, I don't judge my work based on public response. I judge it based on just the way I feel about it. And I think any good artist should not fall victim to the formulas of society, what you have to do to sell something. If you want to communicate, you have to be respective of the fact that, yeah, it is a communication. But you yourself are 
engine of that digestion. Like, well, the way I perceive things is very similar to the way everyone else in the world does when it comes to the language of aesthetics, sound, and visuals, and continuity. So if it works for me, then I think it works for everyone in the sense that I'm concerned with what anyone else thinks, and the audience can make their own decision. And that's the integrity I hold true. And the question that I put expecting to see here is either a validation of that in terms of public response or a rejection. And I think that's going to be a one learning experience, not to say I would change behavior, but one learning experience that I'm anticipating to see just how far you can go when you're truly true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean by that? Really just do what you think is important to express and aesthetically justify as opposed to falling victim again to a commercial society, which unfortunately is so formulaic people have a hard time watching things that don't fit a particular recipe. Yeah. And that's why I'm really pleased by your, your thoughtful review here, because I have a feeling that's going to be few and far between when it comes to a lot of people that watch this movie from a more traditionally-minded standpoint or a more conservative-minded standpoint, because not only is it aesthetically challenging, it's very intellectually challenging and very much against the traditional norms of our society. Mm-hmm. So anyway, to summarize, I, I think I've learned a great deal about myself in terms of that kind of feeling brought to life where, okay, I have this feeling that I want to get to the screen. And particularly with that third layer, modern layer with the fantasy, uh, the young woman 23, in a way, even though that's probably the, kind of the crudest scene of them all, because it's it was really hard to do, I find that to be sort of the great breakthrough for me in terms of the aesthetic development, believe it or not. Even though all the other scenes stand on their own, I think they're just as strong. But uh, I don't know. I realized in myself that guard style and was just pleased I could bring it to light. And I guess that's the best I can say. (laughs) I definitely learned a lot on multiple levels, I can tell you. Well, come tomorrow, we're going to find out who accepts, who rejects. (laughs) Um, Now, I know know Inner Reflections comes out digitally tomorrow. What platforms do we have this on? Is it all of the digital so platforms? More or less. I mean, there's a, there's a scattering of them. I think some of them are a little bit delayed, but it should be on iTunes and Hulu and Vudu and Vimeo. And it, should also, it will also be on Comcast, Verizon, and a bunch of cable on-demand networks as well. So people should be able to punch it up on their smart TV. And you can go to the website now at interreflectionsmovie.com, and all that stuff will be posted later today. Fabulous. Well, Peter, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on the show today to talk about this. So, as I said, uh, I'm fascinated. Fascinated. Um, and even if people just, if they don't quite intellectually get it, they watch this film, they're going to be treated to some visual splendor, some oral splendor from the musical palette. Um, I just, I want to, I do want to see. I want to see a sequel. I want to see the next, the okay. next, the evolution. Good. I I appreciate you saying that. That you comment very much. And I I do have plans. I've written out a full three volume arc of this thing. To the effect, I can do it in a, another twenty five years or something. <laughs> I get some financial success. Yeah. Oh. But, but Debbie, really appreciate you. It's been uh, it's been great talking to you, Peter. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Uh, thank you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Peter Joseph, writer, director, editor, producer, Inner Reflections. And it is two hours, 45 minutes, folks. But it is beautiful. 
The music is eclectic and equally as beautiful. Um, and it is. And it is intellectually stimulating. It posits a lot of things for discussion and for thought, especially in this day and age. And in this particular time, um, yeah, I do recommend you take a look at it. But as Peter said, it's the kind of feeling you might want to start, take a break, and come back to it. Okay, now, Pam, what are we going to do? We have. Should we pick up Brea's or what should we do? How many minutes are left on it? Hmm? Oh. Well, that does not look like that. It should have been. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, do you want to go ahead and do it? Yeah, let's let's pick up the remainder of our interview, my interview with Bria Grant talking about 12 hour shift, uh, because at this point, I think we're going to get into the cinematography. Uh, of the film. So let's continue with our interview with Bria Grant. Funny. <laughs> well, you know, hand in hand with all of that, I've got to look at what Matt Glass brings, not only with this score, but with the cinematography, because there's so much action happening, but you keep the action contained. It's in this room, it's in that room, where you really see a ton of of uh, a ton of, of movement is in the hallway mm -hmm. um, where it opens out a little bit more but it's that camera movement that lyricism that helps you know and it follows with a flow and a cadence that matches your dialogue but then it also celebrates your incredible production design and you didn't go with a black icky hospital you, yeah. you went with, with the ugly sick vomit yellow <laughs> that is the actual color of the actual hospital that was a real hospital that we shot at. So I can't take too much credit for that, but um, we did stick with lighting that we thought was realistic. Instead of doing something more horror or more genre-leaning, we wanted an actual realistic look to mm -hmm. the hospital. And um, the movement of the camera was... The, that was the idea from the beginning. We knew that it, this was a fast-paced script and everything needed to flow very quickly. And one way to keep people engaged is just to have the camera constantly moving. And for each separate area, we created a different look lighting-wise and, and different ideas for camera move within each room. Mm -hmm. So the hallway was always moving. The hallway was literally always pulling or following characters um, because we wanted to make sure it was clear they were going from room to room and we were on this adventure with them and it was going to be very exciting. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Matt did an amazing job. Um, we were lucky enough to, uh, my producer Jordan got a map of the hospital. So uh, oh my before God. we were actually there, Matt and I got to plan out everything room by room and knew what our space looked like and knew which room would be which. Um, and that really helped in being able to plan out how the look was going to be. Well, something that you got, that the two of you do really well with planning, with blocking within each room. Hospital rooms are not big, as we all know. Um the doors are big enough to get your equipment and beds through, so that's a good thing. Yeah. But I love the way that 
Matt's positioning of the camera, no matter what room we're in, makes it feel like the walls are closing in. Uh, the mm-hmm. deeper we get into the film, mm-hmm. especially when Regina starts slipping and vomit on the floor and <laughs> and is covered in blood and is running into rooms, the wa- you get that whole sense that the walls are closing in, the metaphoric sense. And I know that's done through the camera positioning, and it just works so well. Yeah, he's amazing. I mean, he's he's a creative force, for sure. He also did the music in the movie, and it's just crazy to think that he's actually a master of both things. Um, it takes people years and years to be able to do one of those things yeah. well, and somehow he has gotten good at both. Very impressive. Absolutely. And the music, as I said, it's very there's a, a flow to that that matches the flow of the camera. So it makes perfect sense that if he has that talent and ability, that he's composing with a flow that's mirroring his camera movement. And it's very interesting. There's a, a more frenetic pace to the music than we normally hear in films. Um, you guys avoid the quote-unquote horror tropey sounds that go into music so often. Uh, yeah, we talked a lot about that, actually, um, what we really didn't want, which was to sound like every other horror movie that's coming out right now. And we worked on the music a long time. Um, during, during production, we were both listening to the soundtrack of Us quite mm, a bit. Okay. And I think this soundtrack is, is really influenced by that. Um, and... Um, we went back and forth about the music for so long, and Matt ended up landing on something that was very him and very his style, but I think really uh, bolstered the movie in a great way. Um, the opening is just drums over mm-hmm. uh, Mandy walking down the hall. That's all it is. There's drums and no tone, which was perfect for the movie because um, we wanted to make sure that the audience wasn't judging Mandy. Mandy's an anti-hero. She's going to do a lot of bad things. She literally says, like, to the lady in the first scene, (laughs) and you have to be on board with her. If we told the audience through music that uh, this is a good character or a bad character using tones or uh, any sort of notes, um, I thought that was too much. So it's just drums, and the drums just tell you that this movie is about to drive forward really quickly, and you better get on or you're going to get left behind. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it works so well. And I have to say, kudos to to bringing in Angela Bettis as Mandy. Mm -hmm. Because I got to tell you, her, that scowl that she has, but for a few brief moments with Officer Myers, she is perfection. Perfection. Because it plays totally against the hilarity and the chaos around her, yet she's in the middle of it. Yeah, she, I mean, working with a pro like Angela is exactly what someone like me needs. Um, it's my second film, but I still consider myself, you know, at the very beginning of my directing career. And she's so well-versed in her craft, and she's so subtle, and she is so easy to work with. It was just such a dream for me to be able to work with her. And she's so grounded, whereas everyone else in the film obviously is a bit broader, a bit more funny, and, uh, um, you know, in their own universes, whereas Angela is kind of grounds the whole movie, and we're following her um, in this sort of, like, believable world. It's believable because she's there, right? Mm-hmm. Because of Angela. And otherwise, I think it would end up going into Goofy without her. Yeah. Dad. And the fact that you also give her 
more of a backstory. We learn much more about her and who she is and how she got to the point she's at in life. I, I like the way that that plays in. And you don't do it through exposition. You do it through casual dialogue. Yeah, yeah, that was important to me. I mean, it's hard in a movie that is linear, taking mm -hmm. place over just a very short amount of time. Yeah. Because you can't flash to other things in their lives, and you can't show um, exposition. Now, you either you don't want to write it in exposition. So um, the one thing that's beneficial is that you're in a hospital, so you do get to see people at their lowest points and at maybe their highest points as well. <laughs> uh, and then that includes... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lovely pun there. Lovely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm curious. This is a big leap for you. Even though you've done another, you've directed another feature, and you've directed some other stuff, this is a big undertaking with this film. You've yeah. got a lot of moving parts in your story, with your cast, with your location, your camera movements. This is not something where the camera is sitting there on sticks and you don't have to worry about anything. This right, is not right. something where your whole cast is sitting around the bed in a hospital room waiting for someone to die. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, I don't know how to make that movie, though. I, I, I am a person who is going to make a movie that's going to have a lot of fun, going to be have a lot of comedy, and it's going to be fast-paced and keep you on the edge of your seat. That's the kind of movies I'm interested in making. I love movies like that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would love to watch a movie about a person dying in a hospital, and that's the whole movie. Um, it's not the movie that I direct right. necessarily. And this explains some of your choices as an actor as well. Mm -hmm. Because you gravitate. I mean, you think about, uh, just use Beyond the Gates as an example. Yeah. And it's quirky, and it's offbeat. And you've got all kind. I mean, come on. You got a VHS tape. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a no, game. That's, yeah, I am drawn to weird, and there, there's no, there's no question. And I'm drawn to that same weird. I mean, I love when I get a chance to see a film like this. I'm so excited, and to okay. see and to see it when it's as well done as this, Brea. That's a big thing. This does not look like a seventy-five hundred dollar festival level dances with films in year one film. This yeah. has polish. It shows professionalism. You have dotted the I's, crossed the T's, and you carry it through from your opening titles through the very last credit. People okay. must watch all the credits here. Yeah, we, yeah. There's a secret. There's a there's a, a hidden gem at the end. Oh, and it's it is a delicious gem. A delicious <laughs> gem at the end. Because, I mean, I watched till the bitter end, and this is why I always have, also out of respect for all the artisans that made the film. Yeah, that's nice of you. When you get something like that, and it's like, I just sat there watching, and I just busted up laughing. Oh, good. That you threw that <laughs> in. But I've got to ask you, you know, what did you learn about yourself as a director making this film that you can take forward into your future projects? Because this is clearly where you belong, writing and directing. Oh, thank you. I hope so. I mean, maybe that is what I learned. I mean, you know, I started in the industry as an actress, obviously. And I think, particularly for young women, we are, you know, encouraged to be in front of the camera and encouraged to um, 
you know, be pretty, for lack of a better term. And I think the one thing I did take away from this is how confident and how happy I feel when I am behind the camera. And it is actually a more natural fit for me personality-wise and goal-wise, and um, I'm just kind of bossy. And, <laughs> and I just, it's, it's, I love acting, but there's just a lack of control over acting, and it's always been a struggle I've had, um, waiting around for the phone to ring and not being, to, not being able to be as creative as I want to be on a day-to-day basis. And with writing and directing, I have found that I can be creative on my own. I mean, that's probably what I take away from this. I mean, the main thing I want to take I took away from this is I just want to do more and get better. Well, I mean, I think you've done a wonderful job. I can't wait to see what you do next. And I very quickly, I've got to ask, how beneficial is it to you being an actor, stepping behind the camera to direct and write? Incredibly, incredibly beneficial. Um, I, I think a lot of act, uh, directors come in and they know a lot about cinematography or they know a lot about film history, but they are scared to death of actors. Mm-hmm. And I am not. I like actors. I get along with actors. We have a lot in common. So I feel like I am able to talk to them, but also um, give them the same things that I want as an actor. As an actor, I always wanted to be treated as an adult and given uh, the chance to do my own thing. And those are the two things I try to really do for all of my actors. I give them a chance to improvise and I give them a chance to really take control of the characters themselves. Um, Once an actor has that character, I want it to become theirs. I want them to um, be in charge of that character and have some autonomy when it comes to that character's choices and their look and everything. And, and I think a lot of directors come in and they're too scared of actors to ask them their opinion or they're scared they're going to hurt an actor's feelings. And I am i don't want to hurt an actor's feelings, but I think I'm more aware about what would hurt and what would Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. This has been an absolute joy, and I am so thrilled with the film. So much. With- I'm so glad we got to talk again. This is so nice. Oh, Brett, thank you so, so much. Yeah, thank you. And that was Bria Grant, writer-director of 12-Hour Shift. That is available for you now as well. So go save yourselves. 12-Hour Shift, uh, Inter-Reflections, some great films out there right now for you this week. That is all the time we have. Thank you, Peter Joseph, for joining us live today. Uh, We'll be back next week. Sarah Colt will be joining us to talk about the disrupted. uh, Plus, who knows who else might show up. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 